Hi, this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KCI. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity. Uh, today we're going to be um, focusing on the proposed pay cuts that the University of California is about to impose on UC employees. And one of the people he has to, the university has to get its agreement is with us on the show. And that's the president of the University Council, American Federations of Teachers, Bob Samuels. Welcome, Bob. Hi, thanks. Hi. Um, you, uh, you're a lecturer at uh, UC uh, LA, and you've been the president for the last five years? About five years, yes. And uh, your position, what is your position on these proposed pay cuts? Well, first of all, um, for lecturers and librarians that we represent, they have to negotiate with us, and we actually have no um, requirement to negotiate with them. So first we'll probably meet with them to see, um, to ask them some questions, and then we'll start talking to our members. But we don't feel that we're necessarily going to um, support this for several reasons. Um, one of the central problems is that they told us that if they cut um, people making over 46,000, 8%, and people making under 46,000, 4%, they'll save $194 million. But um, looking at the payroll, actually, they should save about $640 million. So we don't know what's going to happen with the other $400 million. Um, so that's a big issue is just where, you know, how much money they're going to collect and where the money is going to you know, go. And then the bigger question is, does the UC really need to do this? Does it really need the money? And um, the UC is a gigantic institution. It only currently gets about 15% of its funding from the state. And so even though the state is um, cutting a lot of money from the UC, a lot of that money is going to be made up by federal stimulus money and also the increase in student fees. So um, we want a very clear accounting of how much money the UC is losing. Um, we also know that there's a lot of money in the UC system generated from research, generated from medical um, services and other type of services, and we think that money should be used if there's a big budget um, hole. There is, a, uh, according to Charles Schwartz, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, Physics, who's a critic of the UC budget, um, he estimates there's, or uh, he looks at the budget figures, and there's a billion dollars, right, taken in in the medical schools. Um, it's the medical schools, medical yeah. services, services, and what they do is um, they have an agreement, basically, or a system that the money stays within the medical schools and the medical services, and so because they have to be nonprofits, um, they put a lot of that money back into compensation. So you have medical professors making over a million dollars, and you have many, many medical professors making over $500,000. Um, so one of our concerns is if they really wanted to have a just um, salary reduction, they would look at the top 10% of the people because um, we did a calculation and something like 8% of the employees make 25% of the compensation. And the total compensation is about $9 billion. So that means that there's 8% of the people making about $2.5 billion. And so if they're really serious about um, finding extra money and cutting people, they would cut at the top, and they would cut the people who have these incredibly excessive compensation packages. But, you know, the doctors who are hired, they expect that, right? I mean, they're hired on the basis of bringing in money, and usually their base salary is quite low. Well, you know, everyone kind of wants to make a lot of money, and they still make a lot of money. But, for instance, um, there's kind of a reverse progressive tax in the UC system. The um, other lecture, lecture, people like lecturers or even low-paid um, faculty members, um, they expect to make money. And um, for some reason, the university claims they're not market-worthy. And so they continue to pay them low salaries and then, on top of that, give them a higher percentage of the cut. So it's a completely unjust, unfair system at this point. So have they scheduled any meetings with uh, the union? Um, not yet. Uh, we had an initial meeting just to talk about the general framework of the budget um, this week or last week, 
and we expect to hear from them soon. Um, one of the other concerns is they want to um, present this to the regents in mid-July, and then they want to start the salary cuts or furloughs starting August 1st. And I find that very hard to believe they're going to be able to do that. Um, we asked them some very basic questions, and they did not have the answers. And one is how this will affect retirement, uh, not just for our people, but for all people. Because as you know, retirement is determined on um, the last three years in your salary. So people are wondering. It's actually the highest three years. The highest three years. Yeah. Um, people are wondering, though, how this is going to affect retirement. And another issue is do you see in the last 15 months has lost about um, $22 billion in investments? Yeah. And that's a gigantic sum. And they say everyone's lost money. But if you look at how the um, pension and endowments have performed in the last seven years, they've consistently underperformed all other institutions, comparable institutions. And so um, what we think is that they're going to be asking for more and more um, contributions from the um, employees. And so that's going to be another hit that's going to come this year. And so... Um, so it would be like a pay cut. Yeah. Uh, really, because it's, uh, you have to take it out of your existing salary. And it's going to be a growing pay cut because they say it's going to go up every year. And um, so that's one of our big concerns. And something that's going on now is um, State Senator Yee from San yes. Francisco, he um, is introducing a bill to get rid of the autonomous status of the University of California. Right. Um, because in the state constitution, it says the University of California has an autonomous status which basically means the legislators can't really impose anything on the university. They can um, do things with the budget, but they can't actually force the university to do anything. And um, we support Yi because so many times when we've tried to get um, things done, the state legislators tell us that they can't do anything about the UC because the UC has this autonomous status. And we feel that um, something has to be done to put added pressure on the university to really stay true to its mission and to really um, protect undergraduate education, which is one of our major concerns. Should the should the union support it if it really if if uh, the legislature tries to impose like uh, free speech kind of on lack of free speech kind of cons- uh, pressures on the university? I mean, is there a way to separate that out from the autonomy issue? Yeah, there's a couple of amendments that we are, um, we're going to work with uh, Yi to add to his bill. One has to do with the Academic Senate and free speech. The other has to do with um, preventing them from raiding the finances of the university. <laughs> um, yeah. But essentially Yi's response is, you know, CSU has the same situation, and they've never um, got involved in free speech with CSU and they haven't, you know, taken money from CSU, even though there's a different structure in in the UC than CSU, being a Research One university. Still, um, we're going to look for certain um, insurances to make sure that uh, the state can't raid the money or impose some type of academic freedom initiative. Yeah, the uh, the they can't impose this eight uh, percent or whatever. Uh, without the union's consent, right? For the, um, for the yes, for the representative represented um, members, and it's very interesting because I've been getting emails from tenured faculty who are not unionized, and they've right. been asking us what we're going to do and will we represent them, and I find that kind of ironic at this point um, because they refuse to be unionized, and now they're kind of seeing some of the advantages because the university has to bargain with us. Yeah, there was actually. Uh, uh, a professor who later became dean uh, at UCI who was leading the unionization effort at UC Irvine, mm-hmm. and uh, it failed for mm-hmm. the faculty, for the tenured faculty, right. although they can technically join uh, UCAFT, um, you know, if they want to join as a, you know, whatever, but anybody can join who is an academic employee, actually. I right, think. but we can't negotiate their contracts, right. their right. salaries, um, and there's some representation at um, Santa Cruz, but the only thing they bargain over is parking. <laughs> um, so that's a strange thing. But um, one, of the, one of our concerns is that there is a um, question about faculty compensation. I think there's also an incredibly um, unequal distribution of wealth 
within the UC system. And one of the things um, it's a little bit difficult to explain to people is that there is a salary scale for the tenured faculty, but something like 80 to 90% of the faculty are off that scale. And many of them um, have renegotiated private deals with a dean. And so they don't go through the regular peer review process, the merit review process. They do an individual negotiation. Usually they get an outside offer from another university. And so they pump up their salary. And what we've recently discovered is the money that they use to pay for what they call these off-scale salaries is the same money that they use to pay for um, lecturer salaries and undergraduate instruction. So at UCLA, there's so many people that are off-scale, and they're making so much money. We have English professors making over $300,000 a year. Hmm. Um, and they make so much money that there's no money left for undergraduate instruction. And so one of the things we're seeing now is the um, getting rid of requirements. They got rid of the general education seminar requirement at UCLA. Hmm. They've increased the class size for writing classes. They've got rid of... They got rid of the um, writing tutors for all classes except for athletes. Um, they're talking about uh, suspending foreign language requirements. They're um, at Santa Cruz. They got rid of a very popular community studies program. Right. They're getting rid of the Latin American studies program. Um, they're restructuring international studies at Berkeley and UCLA. And so we see a lot of the a lot of academic decisions are being made for purely economic reasons, and there have a lot of really bad effects. Do you think these out-of-scale um, um, salary things, do they have to go to the regions to get approved now? Um, I don't believe they do, and I, I talked to once the student regents, and he told me they got just these files of thousands or hundreds, maybe thousands of exceptions, and they just signed off on the bottom of them, and so that there's so many people that are getting exceptional salary um, proposals and that there's no way of handling it. Um, so yeah, I think with the with the last audit, right, there was a big controversy a few years ago. It was in the uh, Chronicle and all that. Right. Uh, they just uh, ex post facto signed off on all the exceptions. Right. And I think that's going on on the campus level. It might even be going on on the regents level still, um, because if like 90% of the people are, are getting exceptions, there's no way to really study it. And another big concern with the 8% salary cut, um, one reason why the numbers probably don't add up is for a lot of the um, faculty who are highly compensated, um, only a small part of their compensation comes from salary. Hmm. So. Some of grants, right? So the grant money doesn't... Uh, they say the 8% should cover grant uh, income too, right? Well, it's very unclear because if you get a federal grant, um, they can't reduce that grant 8%. So either they're going to reduce your salary and take the money and use it for something else, or they're going to take the money and then give it back to the grantees. Um, but a bigger problem is a lot of people have, for instance, um, the medical school, these compensation extra compensation, that probably won't be reduced by 8%. Um, they also get houses, they get cars, they get supplemental mm -hmm. um, retirement programs, they get research slush funds, and I'm sure they're not going to tax that 8%. So it seems like the wealthiest people in the system who a lot of their money doesn't come from straight base salary, it comes from other forms of compensation, it seems like they're only going to be taxed the 8% on their base salary. So they're actually going to get a lower reduction than everyone else percentage-wise. And the impact of 8%, of course, is more on somebody who makes less. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, Are they taking money from, um, I mean, do you, do you see the, a justification for them to raise uh, student tuition? Um, I think that the UC is still a lot less um, expensive than a lot of comparative institutions. So for me, that's not a problem. Um, whenever I hear politicians um, talk about higher education, they always talk about um, access and um, affordability. And that's been going on for like 25 years. And so what's happened is, while some universities have become more accessible and more affordable, um, they haven't, the quality has gone down because they haven't hired enough faculty. And so what's gone on is there's more and more students paying more and more money, but there's less and less teachers, especially undergraduate teachers. And so um, there's a real disconnect there. So I think students could pay a little bit more, but 
only if they're getting more. If they're going to get less, then it doesn't make any sense. In um, financial aid, you mean? Also. In financial aid, I mean, right now I think where it stands with the Cal Grants is the governor wants to phase out the Cal Grants starting next year, and the Democrats um, are resisting that. For, for new uh, students. For new students. Right. So it's one thing that they're resisting. Um, but we have this strange thing. The way that they fund the UC is they have a calculation, how much it costs to educate, educate a single um, student. Right. But they don't differentiate between graduate student and undergraduate student. And they make the assumption that all students will be taught by an associate professor, step three. And for undergraduate students, that's rarely the case. Um, most associate professors teach a majority of their classes are graduate classes. They um, teach an average in the system of under five courses a year in the quarter system. So most of the stu undergraduate students are being taught by lecturers and graduate students. Um, but the state doesn't put that into their calculations. So one of the things we're trying to do is to get the state to audit the UC to actually see how money is spent and how um, and what state money goes into undergraduate instruction. And our belief is what happens is students basically pay for the entire cost of their undergraduate instruction, and the money that the state gives is siphoned off and used for research and used for graduate education. Uh, I want to get back to that issue of this legislative attempt to take away the autonomy of the UC. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a danger there, though, that um, as politics change, you know, if uh, other political forces get into the legislature, is there a danger that they would uh, take it out on the university and uh, try to impose something that you wouldn't like? I mean, we're really looking at safeguards, you know, in, in that case, because we have to think about that possibility. But the um, CSU has been under different types of legislators and different, you know, political influences, and it hasn't been manipulated in that way. But that's something that we have to look at, that possibility. But right now, from my perspective, something has to change. I think the system is incredibly broken, and so I do think that someone has to get involved to change the system. Didn't the UC uh, president's office, um, you know, cut back? They laid off a lot of people, and um, they reduced the, their budget, right? Um, yes. So one thing is they've reduced their budget. They say $67 million, but um, at a budget meeting I was at last week, they said at least $30 million has been transferred to the campuses. So what they did is they took a lot of positions and they transferred them to um, the campuses. But also one of our concerns is the Office of the President used to be, help us in many ways because they were the only centralized authority that could force the campus to comply like to the contract. Hmm. And without a strong Office of the President, it's been very hard the last year to get even our basic contract enforced because um, as our grievance process moves up through the, through the stages, it goes to the office of the president, and they've just been unable to act on anything for about a year because they've switched positions or there's no one covering that position, and there's just a real power vacuum there. So we see that actually as a negative at this point. Do, in the negotiations, do you think they... I mean, it would help if the union was much perceived as a strong union, how do, you, they, how do you think the university perceives the unions? Well, one thing they know is that the legislators can't really force anything. And so when we were in a contract um, conflict and impasse in the past, we've gone to legislators and they've told us they can't do anything because of the autonomous status of the uh, institution. So I think the university knows that and allows them to um, break a lot of labor laws and to um, exploit a lot of people. So that's one of the reasons why I would support the Yee Bill and, you know, some mm -hmm. change in the autonomous status, um, because the university does know that. Do they, uh, do you, is there any kind of uh, attempt to work with other unions on this budget cut issue? Yes, we've been having conversations, and we've talked to them. Um, one of the issues is um, that divides us a little bit is the question of, furloughs versus salaries, right. um, because a lot of our people, they don't work nine to five, They so um, the idea of having days off, unpaid 
days off doesn't really make sense for our people. I mean, even though we would support that as if that's what other unions really wanted to do and that's what our members really wanted to do. So we're going to talk to the other unions, but we're also going to talk to our own members to try to figure out what they want to do. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, graduated from UCI with a PhD and he works for the Cal State system as a faculty member and they've been offered furloughs, is it two two days a, a week? Uh, or two days a month. A yeah. month, yeah. yeah. And uh, it doesn't let him, because he, he was having Fridays off anyway. And so, right. I mean, for professional staff, it doesn't really work. No, and, and what they still mean, it's still going to be the same percentage of salary right. reduction. It's just a different way. They might save some electricity costs if they can close down some of the buildings. But one of the problems we have here is we have these medical schools and medical centers, yeah. and they're not going to close down the medical centers for right. two days a month or something. That doesn't make sense. I know the DMV had a problem because a lot of people could not schedule the days off because they were short staff. Right. And the managers would not let them go, and so they ended up working anyway. Uh, and in the UC system, I would I bet if they followed uh, professors, I mean, uh, lecturers and librarians, they would uh, end up doing as much work as before. Right, especially the librarians who were in the middle of negotiating a contract, and um, one of their big issues has been workload, right. because they've cut so many. A lot of librarians have retired, and they haven't replaced them. And so that's one of our big issues. And so we don't, you know, they're not going to be able to take days off. But what they've done in the past, they have forced librarians to take days off in the past. Also, pay, we had a pay cut, it was a 3% about 13 years ago. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, can you, do you remember, was that, uh, did they give us back the, they gave us, it ended, I guess, so you got the 3% back, but you didn't get it retroactive. No, I think what they did, and I wasn't in the system at the time, but I think that's when they started the 2.5% redirect. Oh, so yeah. Currently, you're... a special fund. Right, yeah. it's a special fund. And so what's going to happen in the first stage when they change the retirement contribution system, I think in April of 2010, the 2.5% that you're already paying in um, will be just redirected. So it'll go from the defined um, contribution to a defined benefit plan. So people won't feel the first move if that's how they do it. Um, and then they're saying at least an additional 1% every year you'll be losing of your salary. Oh, for the pension yeah. uh, um, supplement. Because they are saying that it's down to 60-some percent now of the pension funds compared with last year. Yeah, I think that's about right. And what really concerns me is that... Um, a lot of the regents, um, they were appointed by um, governors for 12-year um, terms. And a lot of them are real estate moguls. And what happened about 2001 is, starting 2000, actually, they changed the way that the pension plan is um, managed, and they outsourced it mm -hmm. to external money managers. And they also put a lot of influence on getting the university to invest more in real estate and um, derivatives based oh. on real estate. And so um, I have some testimony that I found on the web of Udoff saying, you know, asking how much money do we have in these um, mortgage-backed securities, and they said that they're highly invested in that, which makes me think the UC's investments are going to continue to go down and underperform because they just, they got into the worst investments. And so that's one of the things what Yee is looking at. He sees a lot of the regents have steered um, UC investments into um, areas that directly benefit the regents. Hmm. And so you have the most powerful, richest people who are often um, put on the regents, and they're powerful and rich because they're business people, and then they steer either directly or indirectly the investments into um, their area, which has often been real estate, defense contracting, and some very risky investment areas. And so that's why I think the UC has underperformed in the last seven or eight years is because it's gotten itself involved in these um, risky things. And also, the key to investment is to diversify your assets. Right. Percentage and, uh, spread. Right. And if you um, externalize your um, the management of your funds, like they did, to something like 50 external money managers, there's no way to control diversification because what happened is the UC, it's clear, 
Some of the money managers were buying the same stocks that the other ones were selling. Um, some of the money managers were shorting, basically betting that the UC stocks would go down. And so you have this crazy system, unregulated, private, non-transparent um, investing system that has really severely hurt the UC's investments. And this is not just in um, pension. This is endowments, and this is the short-term investments. And this is the different type of retirement plans. People have the 401K and things like that. In theory, the pension is guaranteed. Right. Um, although the health plans are not to right. retirees. And what they're talking about, there's a task force that Udoff just set up oh, right. um, to restructure it or to look at restructuring it. Are they going to cut? I think what they might try to do at first is change the age of retirement oh. or change the calculation of um, how they determine your Years of service or something. Years of service. Yeah. Or they might try to do a new thing for new employees. All right. Um, so they're, they're looking at the different possibilities. Because it seems to me that in the past, uh, whenever they've changed something, the existing uh, employees have been grandfathered in. Right. Um, and so it would be easier politically probably to, uh, you know, protect them and just say the new people would have to come under a new regime. Exactly, and that's one thing Yee's really looked at this because one of his concerns is um, that the UC has an obligation to have certain things transparent and public, and it constantly fails to do that, and especially its handling of the pension, its investments, its choosing of these external money managers. It's been done very secretively. They've broken a lot of the rules. Um, there's been lawsuits that they've lost about this, and they continue to practice in a very kind of uh, shady way. And so Yee really wants the state to step in and at least make the UC more transparent and more accountable. Is there a way to do it without taking away the total autonomy? I think the you know amendment has to be changed or the Constitution has to be changed. I think it, it really depends on what language they use to change it. Um, I think he's trying to be careful to safeguard different aspects of the university that people are afraid the university, the state could come in and man manipulate. But um, I think that status has to change because it just prevents so much. Like, he has passed something like 20 bills trying to get the UC to do the right thing, and they just ignore almost everything that he does. And it passes, you know, in the legislature, and then the UC just ignores it. And a lot of it has to do with transparency, accountability, um, just basically being a public institution and giving the public the information they need. But one thing you don't want is, like, um, the governor has always been, the last few years, been putting a line item, uh, taking out funding, for instance, for the labor centers at UC Berkeley and UCLA. And he's been, you know, putting that in the budget. And so you don't want that kind of stuff to happen. We don't want that, but that's already happening, and that will happen anyway. The, use, the state can do anything with the budget, that the money that it gives to the university. Mm. So that will continue to happen. I mean, we don't, you know, we can try to influence it, but that is, they already have that power. And the problem is, the only way now they can, like, punish the university or try to get the university to do the right thing is to take money away from the university. And we think that's a really bad structure, and it's actually cost the university a lot of money. So when the university, you know, engages in these um, questionable compensation packages for executives, the only thing the state can now do is cut the budget to punish them. So it would be much better if they could say, okay, instead of cutting the budget, we want you to make sure you follow your own rules, and if you don't follow your own rules, there will be a penalty or, you know, um, there will be an advisor from the uh, unions or from the legislature on the committee of compensation. So right now all <laughs> they can do is basically take away money. The, uh, you know, this, they made a big deal about making uh, the salaries public, uh, you know, because there was a Public Records Act request from the Chronicle, I guess. And uh, so, but it's not that uh, easy to get at. You know, the the Register put up the salaries um, on their webpage a few years ago, but the current one hasn't been put up yet. Why is the university making it so hard for people to look at it? Uh, right now they distribute CDs of the data uh, to different libraries but they don't put it up. They don't allow people to put it up. Well, the they resisted all the way. The court had to force them to do it, and so they're complying 
on a minimal level. And one of the things, like in the, I've used the OC um, reader, their database, it's, it's very good, yeah. but it has a big problem. It only tells you base salary and gross salary, and it doesn't account for why, what's the difference between base salary and gross salary, like why is someone right. um, getting this extra money, and it also doesn't account for a lot of other forms of compensation. And so also there's, there's there, there are errors in there that, um, you know, yeah, I mean, there's always errors, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a massive problem. There's always errors. But um, it's still helpful to have that information. It's been very helpful for us. And um, we just wish the information was clearer and more detailed. If it's public, it's public. You know, why do they have to restrict it by format? I, I remember they used to just give printouts. Uh, a few years ago, it was just printouts. And there were two binders for each uh, each campus. There's reams and reams of paper. <laughs> yeah, go check it. You have to look at it at the circulation desk here. Um, but now it's on CD, at least. Yes, but we'll probably have to sue them, or you know, maybe the state can try to do something. But to get the information more accessible um, and have it more accurate and more detailed, I think it will take. This is a problem. It'll take like a lawsuit. Us spending so much yeah, money to get them good. to do the right thing. It'd be so yeah. much better if the state could just tell them they have to do this. I know in Michigan, the uh, Michigan Daily, I think, has a link to the salaries, and it's online. Mm-hmm. Um, so other states, have, uh, public institutions, have done it differently. Uh, what, what I know on the register website, there have been some comments from faculty that are upset that their salaries are public. Right. Yeah. What do you think about that issue? Of is it pri- Is it a privacy issue, or is it? Uh, I mean, we are public employees. Right. We're public employees, and that's what I feel. You know, it should be public. Um, I think the faculty that are upset, part of them are because they've got these secret deals. And because other people in the departments might not have these secret deals, and so now um, at least some of the secret deals have been exposed. But the secret deals is kind of the norm, which is a problem. It makes the faculty incredibly individualistic. Um, it makes it hard for them to look out for the common good and the public good if their central concern is their individual salary and if they're privately negotiating their salary. It really breaks down the core of the university, like the peer review system and the idea of the university as a public good. Um, if you have all these individuals just secretly competing and negotiating deals and being obsessed by their individual compensation, um, it really undermines the spirit of the university. Also, it doesn't give the source, so you can't find out who has Pentagon funding. Right. Uh, so it's a pretty uh, kind of vanilla kind of data. <laughs> it doesn't exactly. really go into depth. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Uh, okay, thank you. For this, uh, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Okay, okay. definitely. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, that was Bob uh, Samuels, who is the uh, president of University Council, American Federation of Teachers, uh, the union that represents librarians and uh, line librarians and uh, lecturers in the UC system. And the university would have to talk to him and the unions about the, uh, and the other unions about imposing this 8% or 4% uh, cut or furloughs um, that they are proposing to do by regento time next uh, in July and, uh, and start in August, uh, this whole plan for a year um, to supposedly uh, save some money. Uh, next we're going to be, uh, this is, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show, of course, are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, we're going to be uh, airing a portion of an interview we did with another observer of the UC uh, system, and he was a graduate student here in Irvine, in 1975 to 1980, and he has written a book called Disciplined Minds, and we talked to him uh, twice before, in 2001 and 2005, and in 2005, it was during the 40th anniversary celebration of UC Irvine, Uh, so there are some time-dated references in the interview, and so bear that in mind, Uh, but the interview is interesting because it talks about the use of salaried labor and what constraints are put on salaried labor like uh, academics, um, how they, the managers try to impose a ideological goal and how dissidents or activists are often prevented from um, doing anything. 
or in his case, he was a graduate student, and he didn't start his uh, progressive group, Science for the People, uh, until after he finished prelims. And so this was Jeff Schmidt, who himself had a First Amendment struggle after the book came out. He was fired from the American Institute of Physics, where he was an editor, and the resulting furor um, ended up in actually him winning his uh, post back in a settlement, or at least a monetary settlement. And that was a model of public organizing. And you can see that at his website called public, uh, it's called disciplineminds.com. And we're going to uh, be bringing you the interview we did, or portion of the interview we did back in 2005 in November. So stay tuned. Jeff Schmidt is with us, and he's the author of a provocative book, uh, Disciplined Minds, which is about the politics of creative work. Uh, Jeff was a student here at UCI for five years, ending in 1980, where he received his Ph.D. in physics. He then joined the editorial staff of Physics Today magazine, uh, published by the F American Institute of Physics. When officials of the physics organization saw Disciplined Minds, they fired him summar summarily after 19 years on the job. Um, to date, more than a thousand people in a wide range of fields have condemned the American Institute of Physics for his firing over the book. Among the protesters are over more than are more than five hundred physicists, the largest number of physicists ever to speak out on a freedom of expression uh, issue in the U.S. Many organizations too have spoken out against Jeff's dismissal, and a pro bono and pro bono lawyers at a large law firm and civil rights organization in D.C. have filed a lawsuit on his behalf. Reviews of the books uh, of the book, along with the protests and the lawsuit, are posted on the web at disciplinedminds.com. Jeff was born in L.A. and went to school in Southern California, including UCI, and now lives in D.C. He joins us by phone from the nation's capital. Welcome, Jeff. Again. Oh, thanks, Dan. Great to be back to UCI electronically. Yeah, Jeff was uh, Jeff was on the air in two thousand and one, uh, and. And we're happy to have him back. Uh, you wrote this book back in uh, a few years ago, and right. maybe you could remind our listeners what the central thesis of the book is. Sure. Uh, Disciplined Minds is about the politics of work and the battle you must fight to be an independent thinker. The, the book focuses on people who are hired to do creative work. I'm talking about salaried professionals, and I use physicists as the book's main example, but it applies to all fields. The book offers a new view of work, namely that work is an inherently political activity, not a nonpartisan exercise of technical skill that may be corrupted by politics. When I say work is political, I mean it affects the distribution of power in society. The work of salaried professionals is politically sensitive because it involves decision-making in which their employer's interests are at stake. Thus, the product of professional labor is political. It takes sides. The journalist's angle on a story, the accountant's bookkeeping decision, the lawyer's choice of contract language, the historian's depiction of events, the minister's sermon, the teacher's lesson, the welfare worker's finding, even the speechwriter's joke. Professional work tilts one way or the other, and the way it tilts is never an accident. The professional is someone employers or funding agencies can trust to tilt in the right direction, to act in a way that is politically correct from the sponsor's point of view. How about the nature of graduate work, then? Yeah, as work being uh, political, uh, education is basically training for work, preparation for work, so that, in turn, is political, too. And it, uh, it, it prepares people to maintain what I call ideological discipline in their work. That's what distinguishes professionals from non-professionals, is that they can maintain discipline to an assigned ideology from their employer, and the uh, practice for that takes place at the university where they uh, maintain ideological discipline for professors and uh, departments and so on to get degrees and grades and so on. So you're saying that a lot of graduates do the grunt work for the 
professionals or for the academics? Uh, yeah, they sure do do the grunt work, but I'm I'm saying more than that. Uh, they they do it with a certain uh, ideology that's assigned to them. They're not there pursuing their own vision for society or their own agenda. They're there to implement the professor's view, and that's preparation for employment where they're going to be furthering the boss's point of view rather than their own. So, so I argue that people who have professional jobs are politically active, but not in the way that they want because they are politically subordinate. Their employer's interests, not their own vision, guides their technical decisions. And, of course, in the book I call upon employees to openly question the assigned ideology, to be politically insubordinate. This week, we, uh, this past week, we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of UCI. And uh, when you were here at UCI, you started a group, or you were active in a group, I mean, uh, Science for the People, and that was an activist group. How were you able to do that if, if this kind of ideological uh, you know, dictates were, were going on? Right. Well, I did it very carefully. When I arrived at the physics department at UCI, I found a bunch of fearful and stressed-out graduate students and a generally repressive atmosphere. So I knew that if I were open with my politics right away, I might be uh, eliminated. I might be failed, for example, on the Ph.D. qualifying examination, which uh, is a big exam that people in every field have to pass to get the Ph.D., and it's a very subjective thing, and the faculty grades it in secret and takes everything into account, including the individual's politics. So I, I kind of laid low at first. I did write a few op-ed articles in the uh, student newspaper, the new university. <laughs> still but, around. <laughs> yes, still around. And But uh, those articles didn't deal with anything close to home. In other words, in the physics department, they dealt with issues outside the physics department. And after the faculty passed me on the exam, I knew it would be more difficult for them to find an excuse to get rid of me, so I slowly increased my political activity, beginning w with another graduate student. So we organized an unofficial science and society seminar in the department where we brought in speakers or gave talks ourselves during the lunch hour. Uh, eventually, I encouraged students from physics and other departments to form a chapter of the national organization that you mentioned, Science for the People. And we, we formed a sizable Science for the People chapter there, and we uh, had a number of events that were well attended and allowed a radical point of view to be heard on controversial issues uh, as diverse as sociobiology or faculty military research, U.S. foreign interventions. And we did this right in the heart of Orange County <laughs> at UCI. What year was that? What years were that? Well, I was at UCI from 1975 to 1980, and our Science for the People chapter uh, existed uh, for most of that time. And um, is there anything, um, oh, we're talking with Jeff Schmidt, from, uh, author of uh, Disciplined Minds, and uh, uh, this is Dan Zhang on Subversity here on KCI, and the subtitle of that book is A Critical Look at Salaried Professionals and the Soul-Battering System that shapes their lives. Uh, is there anything about being a scientist that would um, lend to radicalism? Well, there is not, and that's, uh, that's an important question, actually, because scientists themselves like to think of themselves as people who just uh, judge things on the facts, politics plays no role, and so on. They're, they're free thinkers, and... They're like Galileo. They speak the truth no matter what the consequences. But this is, this is not true. That's one reason why I use physics as an example, as the main example in my book, is because it has that reputation for being non-political. But actually, it's, it's very political. And the, uh, the research of, the, of scientists, including university scientists, is, is really dictated by larger social forces. The scientists and professors have what I call assignable curiosity. It's a system where 
they uh, they're allowed to feel that they've chosen their subjects for research, but actually they're following the lead of the funding agencies, which which make money available in certain areas. And even within the research, the decisions that are made reflect funders' interests. A scientist's research, for example, can go in any of a vast number of scientifically interesting directions at every juncture, but which of these directions does the scientist deem the most interesting? And, uh, you know, might it be the direction that holds promise for the company business or for attracting the interest of a funding agency or for pleasing reviewers in a peer review system that favors the status quo? I think so. And uh, in the book, I quote the boss of a major corporate research facility that employs more than 500 Ph.D. scientists and engineers. He says, quote, you can't select problems for true scientists, much less tell them how to attack the problems, but you can make sure that they are fully informed of the needs of the company business that pay the bill, uh, end quote. So the scientific professionals are also fully aware that the company periodically scrutinizes the product of their labor to decide which scientists to keep and which ones to dump. And the university scientists are just as subject to external direction. They, too, are directed in ways that allow them to think of themselves as self-directed. Uh, the unsolicited grant proposals that fund a lot of scientific research, for example, are uh, these are plans that are created completely by the researchers and then submitted to the funding agencies. Uh, however, the scientists know that most proposals are rejected. The National Science Foundation, for example, in a recent year rejected 21,000 out of 30,000 proposals, and that's typical for funding agencies. So professors who want to do research inevitably have funding agencies' interests in mind as, as they plan their work and write their proposals. Consciously or unconsciously, they tilt their interests toward those of the sponsors. So it, it's not true that, um, that, I mean, I thought there was not supposed to be secret research on, on UC campuses. Uh, there, there isn't secret research, but there's a lot of military research. That is research funded by military research agencies like the Office of uh, Scientific Research at the Air Force, the Office of Naval Research, the Army Research Office. Um, a lot of the military interest research is, is open. It's it's the basic research that's going to lead to technology mm. that the military uses. There's another aspect of this is is the uh, patenting, right? Is a lot of drug companies uh, pay professors, um, make them uh, professor or whatever for that company, and then uh, they're given office space and research parks, and the uh, graduate students and the professors do research on a product, and then they can't uh, release this the the information or uh, the, the they can the patent is given to the company for a term, and they get to exploit the financial uh, resources out of it, and then, um, then yes, it's and, made and there also it. have been limits on what the researchers can publish because right. they they don't want to reveal the what they've found. So that's kind of a patent. That's kind of a secret research. Yes. Yeah. Are there any challenges to that, I mean, uh, around the country? Well, there's a lot of d discussion of it in, in the, uh, you know, the media that deals with, with that kind of thing, but um, there aren't any big challenges. The, at the beginning of your program, you said that the views expressed here are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California. Well, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't need to use the word necessarily, the views are not those of the regents. The regents of the University of California are typical of regents of universities throughout the country. They include a lot of big businessmen. So uh, there, there isn't a lot of conflict. I mean, there, there are discussions within the business, business community how independent should their universities be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, but they are their universities. So there's no fundamental conflict. When you were th uh, there, was was the Vietnam War over then? When you were here, yes, yeah, uh -huh. it had just ended, so not long before, right? 
And what was the uh, what was the with the student activism? Was there student activism on campus? Yes, there was student activism, but not enough of it. I last night I read the UCI Library website about student activism, and uh, it said that the new university was radical up until the mid 1970s. That's when I arrived. <laughs> at, w- at which point it started to focus more on internal issues and stuff, and I, I saw that. I saw the editors of the New U uh, focusing on their careers, doing work at the New U that, would, uh, that, that was oriented toward preparing them for jobs in journalism rather than doing work whose main priority was making the world a better place. I think it varies by uh, with the editors, uh, whoever the editorial team is. Uh, some some years they are much more doing a, a so-called investigative reporting about workers on campus or something, and other years they don't seem to be doing much of that. Right. Uh, well, they, all the editors made sure that they did one big investigative piece at that time, and it was usually a three-part series. Yeah. And you could just see that piece being cut out and pasted into a uh, little booklet behind a resume. This was a, uh, oh, you, a a piece that they would end up sending to big newspapers upon, so you to cin- show what they could do for them. So you're cynical about their motives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cynical or realistic? There's actually an article today about that symposium that the library, uh, I'm a you know, librarian, and the library put on last week, and a student there, Ngan Lei, was quoted as saying, um, in today's uh, New You, that I, uh, um, that UCI lacks a lot of student activism, um, but it can still improve. I see a lot of students concentrating on their own gain in society and forgetting to talk and know other people. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Um, was that the same thing then? It certainly was. It's a, it's a perpetual problem. You know, UCI is now celebrating its 40th anniversary. It's been educating people for 40 years, but society is not noticeably better off as a result. Society is just as hierarchical. There's no less poverty, no less powerlessness, and so on. But employers have certainly been served by the 40 years of training. Uh, UCI has supplied them with well-trained employees who are willing to put their own social goals on the back burner. The point, the point here is that educated people, or formerly educated people, mm-hmm. yeah. are not necessarily a threat to those in power. How about um, the Nobel, Nobel Prizes UCI has gotten, or the faculty at the UCI have gotten? You worked for one, right? Well, oh. yeah, Fred Reines was on my dissertation committee. Now there's a building named after him on campus, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Reines um, Hall. He got a Nobel Prize while he was at UCI. The prize was done for work that he had done a long time before he came to UCI. Uh, a lot of people end up at UCI because of <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Either, whatever. Yeah. He had done. He had uh, not drawn attention or tried to divert attention from the fact that he had done nuclear weapons work at Los Alamos. Ah. He he was in charge of hydrogen bomb effects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is like deciding how high above the ground you should detonate the bomb (laughs) to kill the most people. If if the bomb explodes when it hits the ground, you have tremendous overkill in in that area. Whereas if you detonate the bomb up in the air before it hits the ground, then you can have a wider... uh, range of lethal effect. He, he was in charge of that at Los Alamos, and this plugged him into the Los Alamos Old Boys Network and allowed him to become a big grantsman in the physics department at UCI. He brought in millions of dollars per year from the Department of Energy. He had a big research contract. He was, he was a master of the telephone call to Washington, D.C., to the uh, contract monitor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the, the faculty didn't really respect his physics work, but they bowed down to him because he was bringing in all kinds of money to the department. And 
eventually they ended up naming this building after him. What, what did he get the Nobel for? He got he 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 put together a he and another guy put together an experiment to detect a particle called the neutrino. Mm-hmm. So he, his Nobel Prize was because of that finding the neutrino. It's a was a particle that physicists knew existed but was very hard to detect because it rarely interacts with matter. It just goes through things without hmm. interacting. It interacts very rarely, so he had to put together a very big detector and uh, wait a long time to, to collect the data. So it was, it was an experiment that involved a lot of Teamwork. Or, organization, yeah, yeah. basically. And he was, a, he was an organizer. A, move, a mover and shaker type. I remember sitting in an office next to his much smaller office, uh, another professor, and uh, hearing Ryan, Fred Reines' voice booming through the wall uh, on a telephone call to Washington, D.C., and the professor I was with commented uh, how physics could uh, has, has room for all kinds of skills. <laughs> the... Uh you um, in the book you mentioned an incident in which uh, one of your fellow graduate students passed away, and you tried to uh, get the university to recognize his uh, his work. Yes, that's right. One of uh, Fred Rhinus's graduate students, Scott Nakamura, suffered a fatal cerebral hemorrhage while working in one of Rhinus's laboratories. Scott was from a working class family in Hawaii, and had gone much farther in school than anyone else in his family, so his family was very proud of what he had done. He had been a graduate student for many years, actually eight years, so he was near getting his Ph.D. So we, uh, in the Science for the People group, asked UCI to award the degree posthumously, just uh, to do something nice for his family. But Fred Reines said, no, no way. He Fred Reines said, the Ph.D. is the coin of the realm and must not be devalued. Uh, so that he, Reines said that, he, that uh, Scott Nakamura could get a master's degree. But we didn't, we didn't agree with that, so we circulated a petition which forced the chairman of the physics department to appoint a committee hmm. chaired by Reines to decide the matter. So Reines was furious, but he had to hold hearings and meet with other faculty, and in the end, they awarded uh, Scott a degree called the C-Phil, which is a uh, degree that ranks between the master's degree and the Ph.D. It's like... It's candidacy, isn't it? Yeah, candidate in philosophy. It means uh, you've done everything except finish the dissertation. I'm a pre-candidate. Oh, really? Because I never uh, did prelims. (laughs) <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so sometimes uh, on one editorial, editorial board, I'm listed as pre-can in political science. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I think in German it's called Dr. Anders or something, Dr. Anders or something. Uh, is There's a way they say it, and uh, the abbreviation in German is uh, uh, DRS, I think. It's, yeah. Uh, it is, is means you don't have a doctorate yet. <laughs> right. I still right. May, I still may be able to get it. <laughs> but maybe reading your book, I won't <laughs> pursue it anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I encourage people to go as far within the system as they can without selling out. So, but a lot of junior professors, you know, um, think they can be activists after they get their degree, after they get their tenure. Uh, like assistant professors, they say, "Wow, we have to work on you know your their their review and whatever, the right. seventh year review, or whatever," and. Uh, but by the time they get tenure, they're probably <laughs> not interested in doing much. Well, after seven years of uh, towing the line, that becomes a habit. What they thought they were just pretending to be for for a while becomes what they actually are. It's kind of frightening. I mean, there are exceptions, but, of course. Uh, yeah. Yes, there are exceptions. And, uh, of course, I mentioned those in the book. And... We need to find ways to encourage people to become the exceptions. 
Yeah, there's a way. I mean, that's part of the problem of the left, I think, is they didn't uh, create the institutions that uh, supported this kind of uh, the social change movements uh, to go on after a particular you know issue is over. Uh, and people get sucked into this uh, system. Yes. Yes, definitely. The, the system provides uh, income and stability. So that was our interview with Jeff Schmidt, uh, our second interview in 2005 during the uh, 40th anniversary celebrations of UC Irvine. So there were some dated references to New You and uh, other events uh, that week. Uh, this is Dan Sung uh, signing off for Subversity. Earlier we heard from Bob Samuels, the president of UCAFT, about the university's proposed 8% cut on academic and uh, staff employees and staff, and uh, and his reaction to that. And also he talked about the Yi proposal to take away the autonomy of the UC so that the legislature can have more control. Um, this is Dan Zhang signing off, and we'll have audio file of, and podcasts of this uh, online shortly, and it's also available at the iTunes shop for free downloadings, downloads shortly. This is Dan Zhang signing off for sub. Diversity.